This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. The return of Jesus Christ to the earth is a dominating theme in the New Testament. It fills virtually every book of the New Testament, reference that the Lord is going to return. It's meant to be a motivation for us, and we want to look today at the way in which Paul encouraged the Thessalonians with the absolute certainty that the Lord is going to return. Because he's coming again, the Bible tells us again and again to be watchful, to be ready, to be waiting and looking for his return. It was a motivating influence that changed the lives of the Thessalonians and gave them hope. And I pray it's going to give us hope as well. You remember that Jesus promised that he would come again. And in Acts chapter 1, after giving instructions to his disciples, when he said to them, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He then said to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, and when he had said these things, the Bible tells us, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went Behold, two men stood by them with white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go. He went to heaven right in front of the early disciples. And then angels came and talked to them and said, As you saw him go, This Jesus who went to heaven will come again in the exact same way. What does that mean in the same way? I take it to mean that he's going to come again in his glorified body, personally, literally, really come down to earth. He's going to come through the clouds. He's going to come with an accompaniment of angels around them. And he's going to come in his glorified body. He's going to return again. I love that the angels wanted to convince those witnesses as Jesus disappeared for them. And we can imagine the sense of loss they might have felt in that moment. But this was a word of encouragement. At the very moment Jesus ascended into heaven, God was sending a word to them, he will come again. And then that's found throughout all of the New Testament. And particularly in the book that we're studying, 1 Thessalonians we've already seen three references at least to the return of Christ. In chapter 1 and verse 9 and 10, um, we read Paul's witness about the testimony of the Thessalonians that we've heard among you how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Chapter 1 has a reference to his coming. Chapter 2 and verse 19, Paul says, you're our joy and our treasure until the coming of Jesus. And then as we saw last week in chapter 3 and verse 13, Paul was praying that God would establish their hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we get to chapter 4, and almost to the end of the chapter, it's all about the Lord's return. Because the Lord's return was to be on the minds of all the followers of Jesus, on their minds so that they would know it. We have, as part of our movement in the Evangelical Free Church of America, an important statement about what we believe about the Lord's return. In our statement, it's statement number nine, we read, we believe in the personal, bodily, glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy, and as our blessed hope, it motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. We just recently adopted that as our statement because we want to be sure that we're shaped by the constant expectancy that the Lord could return at any time. And that is his return, even though we might not all agree on all the particularities of timing, is going to be personal and bodily real, and it's going to be glorious. In the Gospels, Jesus himself talked about his return, and he speaks about the Son of Man coming in his glory to sit on his glorious throne. Peter, when he wrote 1 Peter, mentioned the glory of Christ that was going to be revealed three or four times in his letter. And to Titus, Paul wrote that we wait for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's throughout all of the New Testament. And then when we come to this passage, we see some background information about why anticipating the Lord's return is so helpful in shaping our life in the here and now. And that's what I pray will happen. You may be a little disappointed if we don't handle all the particularities of the timing of the Lord's return. That's for a sermon at a later time and for some discovery there are a number of views about what happens at the end, but what Paul's dealing with in this passage comes out of a context. In particular, I think there are two things that underscore why this next section, chapter 4, verse 13 through 5, verse 11, was written for us. One is sort of implicit and the other is explicit. First, the implicit reason why Paul wanted to speak about the Lord's return it appears that they were so consumed by the Lord's coming that some of them had actually changed the course of their life. In particular, many commentators think that many in Thessalonica stopped working altogether and sat on the steps waiting for the Lord to return. You get a little sense of that when Paul writes to them. We didn't look in too much detail at this text last week, but in chapter 3 and verse 11, Paul admonishes them to live quietly, to mind their own business, mind their own affairs, to work with their hands, just as we instructed you, and to walk properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. That's an interesting phrase. It's like, I want you to work. I want you to mind your own business. I want you to take care of your affairs. And it appears that perhaps what's being implied is that some were just sitting around waiting for the Lord to come back. If you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, you see a little bit even more of that in verse 6, 
where Paul says, we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness, not according to the tradition you received from us. And then he explains his tradition, that he worked hard when he was there. He didn't take bread from anyone without paying for it. He was conscientious in all that he did, and he told them to do the same. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons, we command you, encourage you in the Lord to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. I think that's a little bit of what may have been going on here. And one of the contributing factors might have been that the Lord's coming back, so I don't have to work anymore. Now, that would be great, wouldn't it? But that's not what Paul's saying. The Lord's coming back, so in the words of Jesus, engage yourself in the Lord's work until he comes. That perhaps is an implicit reason for what Paul says, beginning in our text today, chapter 4, verse 13. But the more explicit reason really is wrapped up in the text. So let's read verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. In my journal, I circled that word, asleep. It's a euphemism for death, for having died. We don't want you to be uninformed brothers about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Let's keep reading. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him, here it is again, those who have fallen asleep. It's again in verse 15. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. It's a third time. And then verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So in my journal, I circled those who are asleep in verse 13, those who have fallen asleep in verse 14, those who have fallen asleep in verse 15, and the dead in Christ. You know what Paul's talking about. He's talking about those who likely prior uh, to them receiving this letter, but since Paul was there, had physically died as members of the church in Thessalonica. And all of those who are with them were concerned about their welfare. They were asking the question, if our brothers and sisters, my wife, my husband, my children, my father has died, what's going to happen to them? Will they miss the Lord's return? What's going to happen the moment they die because we put their body in the ground? That's a reasonable question, and there was a concern for those who had died. To begin with, Paul wants them to have a grief with hope. Paul's not talking about anything here that eliminates all the grief associated with death. Death truly is an enemy. It will one day be finally vanquished, but now we suffer the pains of death when a loved one in our life passes away. 
that had happened here in this context. And Paul says, I don't want you to grieve, verse 13, as those who have no hope. You do have hope, and we grieve. We weep with those who weep. We we suffer the pains of death, but we do it in the context of the hope that Paul is about to lay out. And that hope laid out here is that there is a hope even for those who are in the ground, who who have died, and we've buried them. And that hope is unusual in the day. There was a poet about 250 years before Christ whose writings influenced the Greek culture, uh, Tacitus, and he said this, hopes are for the living, the dead are without hope. There's a common thought that if you died, it's over. There's no hope for you. And the Christian gospel smashes that to pieces. And Paul is saying that even though someone might die, we still have hope. And what's the hope rooted in? Look at verse 14. For since, with certainty, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and do we believe that? Do we believe in the resurrection? We preach the resurrection. We we know that Christ has died, was buried, and was raised. Since we believe in the resurrection, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with them those who have fallen asleep. This we declare to you by the word of the Lord. We who are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord won't even see the Lord before the dead in Christ do. For, verse 16, the Lord's going to descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ are going to rise first. This describes the bodily return of Jesus with a cry of glorious command, the sound of a trumpet. You get the sense that this is not a, it's not a quiet return. This is a glorious return. When Christ came the first time, he did come quietly, obscurely, to an unknown little town of Bethlehem. And yet when he comes again, he's going to come with this triumphant return, the sound of a trumpet. And to comfort them, Paul announces to them that those who have died are going to be raised in the same way that Christ was raised, affirming the resurrection of Jesus, those who have died are going to be resurrected. And actually, in some twinkling of an eye in a, in a fleeting moment, the dead in Christ will rise first and meet the Lord in the air. Verse 17 says, then we who are alive, who are left at the Lord's return, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It's going to be this reunion of the bodies of those who have died will be resurrected. All who are alive in Christ are going to be caught up into the clouds where Christ is. And so shall we, verse 17, always be with the Lord. Hey, we're passionate about the resurrection of Christ, and we need to be passionate in the same way about his coming again, because when he comes, it's going to impact not only the living, but those who have died in Christ. This was designed by Paul, I believe, to lay out unmistakably that the return of Christ means 
that all who are in Christ are going to be with him forever. That's the first big idea, I think, of this opening section, that when he returns, everyone who from all time have been in Christ are going to be united with him, and so shall we always be with the Lord. I think we're going to be gathered to be with him in the clouds. It's going to be a reunion. And what's going to happen in that moment is those that we're concerned of who may have died before us, we're going to be reunited with, and we will then always be with the Lord. This is designed to just convey how glorious the Lord's return is, how comprehensive it is that everyone who has placed faith in Christ is going to be united together with each other, and more importantly, forever with the Lord. So then you can see verse 18, where Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. More about that in a moment, but the whole plan, I think, of this paragraph is to say the Lord's coming and those who have died are not going to miss out. So you might ask the question, well, what happens in the moment someone dies? If we put their body in the ground, what happens to them? We have guidance in that from the Bible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 6, Paul said, we're always of good courage. We're never afraid. We have courage, even in the face of death. Because we know that while we are at home in the body, as you are, if you're listening to me now, you're at home in your body, we are away from the Lord. If we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We're not in heaven with him. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from our body and at home with the Lord. So the way Paul describes it is that when we die and our immaterial self is separated from our physical body, our body is put into the ground to await the day of resurrection, but the immaterial part of us is immediately present with the Lord. And it's always our ambition to please the Lord then. We're all going to appear before him. At 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want to encourage you with these words, that when death happens for the Christian, we are immediately with Jesus. Our bodies are placed in the ground to await his return described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When he comes and uh, comes with the sound of the trumpet, in a mighty way. That's what we know for sure, that Christ's returns means that all who are in him will from that moment be forever with him. Now, chapter 5 continues, and chapter 5 describes that the return of Christ is for judgment on those who do not know and love Christ. So chapter 5 says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In my journal, I circled the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is always a time of judgment uh, where the Lord is coming to make things right. His day, his final reckoning for all of his creation that season of time where he's coming in finality to make things right and to come in judgment. It's going to come like a thief in the night, which does indicate no one knows the time. 
Jesus said that. No one knows the hour of his coming. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the Lord is coming. Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. While people are saying, there's peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. In the day, that phrase, for Paul to write this phrase, there's peace and security, everyone in Thessalonica would have known that that was sort of a slogan for the Roman Empire. It would have been the watchword that Rome provides peace, the Pax Romana, and they provide at a certain level security for all of the empire. Rome provides that. But when the Lord comes, no nation will be able to provide peace and security from the day of the Lord. The Lord is coming and it's going to come suddenly at a time that no one knows, which has led many people to say, well, wait, 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 wait. It's 2021. And here in the first centuries, Paul's writing that you don't know the time it's going to come at any time. It's going to come suddenly like a thief in the night. But there's 2000 years passed and he still has not returned. Peter takes this up in 2 Peter, where scoffers say, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they are. Nothing has really changed. But Peter reminds us in 2 Peter 3, verse 8 and 9, don't overlook this one fact, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient to you. He's patient to you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Where is the promise of his coming? It's all throughout the scriptures. But would we ever get lazy in not letting it be a motivation for us that the Lord could appear at any moment? It's written for us both as an encouragement for those who have already died and for us as we wait for his coming. It's also given as a bit of a warning that for those who do not love Christ, it will be a day of judgment. But now Paul shifts and he begins to talk to the church. And he wants to wake up the church to the reality of the Lord's return. And so we pick up his word to them in chapter 5 and verse 4. But you're not of the darkness, brothers, that the day should surprise you. You should be ready. For you're all children of light and children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not be sleeping as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For the one who sleeps, sleeps at night, and the one who gets drunk, gets drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Let us be sober. We're, we're different. We're, we actually are anticipating the Lord's return, even though the world might be passing along saying, Where's the Lord's coming? It's never going to happen, but not so with you. In fact, if you zero in on verse 8 and uh, verse 9, 
you'll see, particularly verse 8, since we belong to the day, let's keep sober. And now here's the admonition for the text. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of salvation, let's be ready. We already have our life in Christ. We have put on a breastplate. What does that do? That's a a shield, a covering of all of the vital organs. We are protected by faith in Christ. And we love God and we have hope. You see those three words? I circled those. Faith and love and hope. Faith is, no matter what happens, I am trusting in God who saved me by his grace and who's coming back for me. It's faith that is, in a sense, an anchor to believe God in any time. And you remember the context here. There was trouble for the church at Thessalonica. And in any trouble that we have, it's faith that is a shield for us to persevere to the end until we see Christ and to love God, to love God. Do not love the world, neither the things in the world. If anyone loves the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's a love for God that keeps us in these days as a shield around us. We love God. The world's passing away, all of it. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, all the pride of life, it's all passing away. But the one who does the will of God, you know what that says? You will abide forever. So shall we always be with the Lord? This is an admonition for readiness. Knowing that the Lord is returning is a call to be focused, to be alert, to be vigilant, that his return could come at any moment. And so we have faith in him. We believe what he said. We love him. We don't let other loves come in and eclipse him from our first love. And we have hope in him. Hope in this context, a hope of salvation, is always our future anticipation of our final glorification with him. We we have that and we long for it. We put it on like a helmet, so we're protected. I wonder if you caught that these are the same three words that Paul used earlier in chapter one and verse three when he knew about their labor of love, the steadfastness of their faith and hope in the coming of Jesus. He loves these words because they are the protection. So in light of the Lord's return, what's Paul admonishing the church to do? Keep believing, keep loving, keep hoping. Because you're not of the night that the day of the Lord, his unannounced return should take you by surprise. You're going to be ready for his return. One thing that I would encourage you to do as you look through chapter five is notice the pronouns because there is a comparison between they, them, and those folks who don't know the Lord yet. And we, us, our, we possess in Christ this everlasting hope In verse 9, that's going to save us from the wrath to come and we'll obtain our final salvation through Christ who died for us. 
so that whether we are awake or asleep might live to him. He died and rose again. Again, a, a reference to the resurrection. We believe he died and rose again, and we know he's coming. And so, how does the text conclude? Both this paragraph in chapter 5, verse 11, and chapter 4, verse 18, end with these words. Verse 11, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Paul really anticipated that the return of Christ would be always before us as a source of our motivation and our courage, even when someone we love dies in Christ. Encourage one another. What can you be encouraged to know? You can be encouraged to know absolutely that those who have died in Christ will not miss out on his return. And those who have died in Christ are going to be reunited with all the other saints who are in Christ. And you can be encouraged to know that for as long as eternity goes, which is forever, we will always be with the Lord. The coming of Christ has been a rich motivation through some of the most difficult times. Some of our great hymns were written in times of great persecution that longed for heaven and shaped the way saints live today because of a hope of heaven. Even as you think about some of the terrible times in our own country, through the whole episode of slavery in the United States, many of our greatest Negro spiritual songs were written with a longing for God to come and rescue and bring us to glory and take us over the River Jordan. We're going home to be with the Lord. We're going to see him face to face. It was always designed that in the worst of times, this hope would be an anchor that he's coming back for us. And even in death, it doesn't unsettle us. I've had the experience in my life to do many funerals over the years. I can't think of a worse experience than to officiate a funeral in which we don't know whether a person had faith in Christ. And I can think of no more joyous experience than to officiate a service for a saint who has walked with Jesus and has gone home to be with the Lord. It's that context that Paul writes this text for those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. When I was a young pastor at a church in New Jersey, one of my members was dying of cancer. And about two days before he died, I went to visit him, his wife, Jean, and their 20-year-old Down syndrome son, Mark, was there. And when I walked in the room and saw Bob, who was about 55 years old, dying of cancer, we knew he just had a couple days to live. And he opened his eyes and looked at me and he just said words I will never forget. He said, oh, pastor, God is so good. I listened to that man tell his love for Christ, his longing to be with him, which he was in two days. And I realized that what shapes even the face of death is an anchor and a hope 
that we're going to be with the Lord forever. It's going to be an encouragement for us that we will always be with the Lord. Bob believed in the resurrection. He believed that he would be with the Lord. He knew that the Lord would come, perhaps for his wife and son. But it was an anchor for him that let him see death in a different way. I think that's what's meant by Paul when he said, encourage each other. Encourage each other. This world is passing away. You might remember the words of Jesus in John 14. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Those are the words of Jesus. We've read the words of Paul, but both are intended for us to be an anchor through the best of times and the worst of times. I wonder, do you have it? What is the thing you're looking most forward to in the most ultimate sense? I would say, let it be that we hope to see Christ and to be with him for all of eternity. We're all running a race. We're all trying to make it through this difficult season of our life. And then it just helps us to live well today if we know that our days will come to an end. And the way Paul finished his race in life is quoted in 2 Timothy chapter 4 in verse 8, where he said, I've run the race, I've kept the faith, I've finished the course. And then verse 8, henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, because he's coming in the day of the Lord to make things right, he will award me in that day, and not only to me, but to all who love his appearing. Let's love and long for the appearance of Christ. Oh, let's live today to the best of our ability. We're not going to sit on the porch and wait for him to come. We're, we're going to be busy and do all that God asks us to do. But let us be shaped with a hope that he's coming for us. And let us be driven by a love for God and others as his church. And let us keep faith that even as he came to Bethlehem, so he will come in glory for all who wait for him. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the promise of your coming. I thank you that the Lord Jesus is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God and you're going to raise the dead in Christ and gather your people together. And eternity will be our pleasure to be in your presence. Lord, I pray that today, whatever circumstance we're in, we will be shaped deeply by this hope of your return. Even if we're in the valley of the shadow of death today, or death has come near to us, in ones we love, 
I pray that by your grace, our faith will enable us to fear no evil because you're with us. Lord, this is what we pray for, that in the way that you encouraged the church in Thessalonica, our hearts will be encouraged too. By your Holy Spirit, help us to believe these things, to live according to them in the way we think about today and tomorrow and all the days that you will give us until you come. And we say, come Lord Jesus, come. In your name we pray. Everybody said, amen.